1: An educator, designer, and social entrepreneur from Sydney, Australia, Chris is the founder and CEO of PixiePal, a light tech communication tool for all ages, abilities, and settings. In today's conversation, we discuss the level of autism acceptance and inclusion in Australia, why Chris is passionate about working with the autistic population, PixiePal's mission and overall vision, communication as a human right, limitations of high-tech devices, some do's and don'ts of using Augmentative Alternative Communication, or AAC, and advice for parents and teachers who feel stuck when their students aren't progressing. In this episode, discover what's possible when communication is made available. To learn more about Chris, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at autismpodcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Chris McDonald. Hi, Chris. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for coming on the show today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Most welcome.
1: Let's start with a brief introduction.
0: Absolutely. So my name is Chris McDonald. I've been working in the disability sector for pretty much since I left high school, or definitely since I left high school. It's always been a passion of mine. I've been teaching for almost 20 years in the special needs sector in New South Wales, which is a state in, in Australia. And I've always had a real interest in how to get children to reach their potential. And a a place that I've arrived at is is basically if I can enhance their ability to communicate and um, increase their access to communication systems, really good things happen. So it's basically become a huge driver of what I do each day when I wake up because I think it's um, a really important uh, space to contribute to. So that's basically who I am. I mean, I'm a dad, I'm a gardener. I enjoy um, everything that's to do with nature and, um, but, um, yeah, this is, this is my passion. This is what drives me.
1: Nice. Well, we've had some guests from Australia come on the show before, but I'd like to hear your perspective of what you think the level of autism acceptance and just awareness overall is in your area.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely, I mean, Australia is a, Australia's a big place and there's, we haven't, you know, unlike a lot of places, like say in Europe and in the States, we've only got a few big major cities. We're a very big land mass with a couple of big major cities. The largest populations are obviously Melbourne and Sydney, where I'm based in Sydney. And I've got to give Australia its credit because, you know, we have as a society and as separate communities, you know, really pumped in a huge amount of funding and priority to disabilities, um, including autism. and there's just in the last, or oh, you have to, I'd have to Google it. But you know, I think there it's called the NDIS, which is called the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which came out, I'm going to say, four years ago, five years ago, and it was a huge, huge step that the government took to try and place the control into the hands of, of parents and families as far as access to money goes, and then the access that 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 money was able to be deployed into. You know, paying speech therapists, paying occupational therapists, paying physiotherapists, um, purchasing equipment, and just basically accessing whatever they felt that their child needed. I guess that's in a child perspective. And then also, you know, adults you know, with di- different disabilities, including autism, all of a sudden had control over what money they were getting and also how they were, they were spending that money. And so that's really changed the landscape. As far as funding goes, which I guess you know, in in many people's circumstances, is 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 quite an important thing, and there's been a lot of support put in around that NDIS scheme, an enormous amount. We're talking you know billions of dollars that have that have been spent on it. From an educational perspective, we have many schools that are autism specific. We have many special schools. There's a, a constant dialogue and discussion going on around inclusion and integration, you know, and best practice. There's a really, really strong link between educational institutions like as in schooling institutions and, and um, universities. So it's, yeah, I, I would say I would, I, would give, I would give Australia probably an A as far as just its, its priority and capacity to address some of the needs. Obviously, like everywhere in the world, you know, there's, there's a lot of, we've got a, lot, a long way to go. But I think that we are, are definitely, and we're a very small population as well. Like, let's not pretend that we're, you know, the you, you've got situations in it. I, I think the the population of California is, is larger than the population of Australia. So it's not, we're not talking about that amount of people, but we are, as a, as a society, I think, very aware, accepting, and also keen to make people's lives who have been impacted or shaped by, by disability, including autism, you know, I, I think we are really trying to address that. So I think we're doing a great job with that.
1: Yeah, I've heard a lot of great initiatives being done in Australia. And I know that there's a big emphasis on the neurodiversity movement over there too, and kind of looking at disability from the social model instead of the medical model.
0: Yeah, definitely. Would you
1: say that that's played a big role in kind of shaping acceptance? Yeah,
0: I think it has. And I also think that, you know, I think a lot of people want to get on the back of private business and sort of, you know, boohoo the way they kind of treat things. But I mean, there's a, there's a huge, um, I guess it's the equivalent of in the States of, of Walmart. It's a company and it's basically a supermarket and they have a thing um, once a week where they dim the lights and turn the music down. I'm not actually sure of what the what the phrase is, but it's it's basically autism friendly, you know, or, or disabilities friendly. So mm-hmm. it's that type of thing on, on that level of private business, you know. I guess that's a good example of kind of the the, the level that it's it, it's being addressed at, you know. Um, yeah. And there's always a lot of stuff in the media about how to set things up in a way that are, are, are inclusive, you know. And I mean, inclu- inclusion is a very complicated thing if you're not coming from this space. And I think that we've, as a group of people, we've done a good job in, in getting people to understand, you know, for someone who, I've got lots of friends here who don't have children with disabilities and don't work in the space like they, they work in building or banking or whatever. And they, when I have conversations, with them, they're like, oh yeah, I saw this thing. Or, do you know what I mean? Like it's part of culture. And, mm. and I, I think that, that that is a pretty good place to address it from on, on a very sort of macro level. And I think that's been done, been done quite well.
1: Nice. So on the topic of inclusion, I'm interested to hear because. So, I'm a BCBA a board certified behavior analyst, and I have some experience working in schools back in California. And there was this school district, Berkeley in the north. And when I was there, they passed this initiative to have all of the schools in the district be, quote, inclusive. But what that really did is just unfortunately put some of the kids who needed more attention just in the corner. But as long as they're in the same classroom and as long as they got some time with the teacher, then it counted. But it was not really set up in the right way to really prepare the teacher for what to do in kind of bridging that gap between the autistic child and his peers or her peers. And so there would sometimes be a one-on-one aid or one-on-one shadow that would work with that kid. But it was more like physical inclusion, kind of, but not really. So what do you think has been done well in Australia to really move towards that?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, inclusion is it's an interesting thing. I work in a, in a, in a school that's um, a, a special school. Um, they're the only places that I've worked. And the inclusion conversation amongst special needs colleagues is is really interesting because quite often we would say, well, you know, how could student X possibly go into a mainstream setting that's going to be a very challenging space for them to learn in? I think that on a a very broad level, the conversation around inclusion now is, that's our kind of generation's problem to work out. And I think that in order to, get to a very good space in 2037, I think that we have to go through this now because this conversation wasn't happening 15 years ago. And so I think it's just a kind of, and and you're talking about education systems, you're talking about big monoliths of politics and comings and goings of political parties and ideas. and, and And I think that it's just Not unfortunate, but I think it's just a a very natural flow. When you're talking about trying to to shift the way an education system works, whether it's in California or whether it's in Sydney, I think that you need to sorry, New South Wales, pardon me. There needs to be a certain acknowledgement of just how hard that progression of thought and shifting of thinking is. And I think that the introduction of the discussion around inclusion and how to do that well it has to go through a process. And I think that we're, we're probably at the beginning of that process of what that looks like. And I think that when we look back on these times, we'll be like, well, that you know, like not unlike the civil rights movement in the States or, you know, the Indigenous movement in, in, in Australia and things like that. Like, I mean, just, I guess, kind of like jumping topic, but on, on a very similar parallel, you know, like Indigenous First Nations rights in Australia now are in a very, very good place, but 10 years ago they weren't. But this constant dialogue and this constant discussion around what are the needs and what does need to be addressed and how can it be best addressed and what types of things could we do, it's flowed onto a very good space now. You know, it's it's nowhere near what it needs to be, but there has been a process. And I think that we're going through a process globally with inclusion. And I think if you if you take different snapshots to different places on where they're at in that in- inclusion idea, I think that we're all moving in the right direction with it. you know it's it's a, it's a it's a big thing um, right and I've, and and, I, and I'm very glad that you know we're having that discussion because the idea of inclusion is it's it's a hard thing for people to digest depending on what background they're coming from, you know because even if I speak for myself, you know I mean if if I m- m- both my childhood m- both my children are typically d- developing children but if i knew that there was five children who had very complex needs in their classrooms i would as a parent be like wow okay like i hope that the school and that class and that teacher had the resources to be able to support those children but also that that's not going to be have a negative impact on the educational achievement of my child so it's a very very complex conversation that right. that I think that we're that I think we're having it you know and mm-hmm. I think that having having that conversation is a very good thing. Inclusion in Australia is probably number one discussion um, at the moment, and it's across not just education, but it's across employment and it's across access to services you know within the communities and. Um, and also just generally just on a, on, a, on, a, even on a huge macro level, just rights, you know, like what, what, what is everyone's rights? You know, does everyone have the right to attend a concert or does, you know, be able to use transport? The, the, I know that the government's spent an enormous amount of money making sure that all of our train stations have elevators and, and, and things like that. So it's, I think Australia is doing a very good job with the resources they have to facilitate inclusion because it is, it's, it's a very big thing.
1: Right. Finding that balance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right, Chris, let's um, switch gears a little bit and talk about your background. So you said you started working with this population straight out of high school. How did you fall into it? Were you always interested in helping people or what sparked that?
0: Yeah. So I came from a quite a, an unusual and unique childhood, which if it's okay, I won't particularly go into, but there was aspects of it where communication and being able to express myself was quite limited in, in many ways. And so I guess I, I used to, as a child, spend a lot of time by myself thinking about certain things. I really, really was interested in gardening. And I forever, you know, when, when you say to a child or you know an adolescent, what do you want to do? My answer would have been, I want to be a landscape designer or a landscape engineer or a landscape gardener. And that, and that was always my passion. And I'm still very interested in all of that sort of stuff. but. In my last year of high school, I found a degree that was a double degree in primary education or elementary education and special needs education, and I just looked at it and went, "I want to do that. That looks fantastic." And so I did that. And I grew up in a house where I I grew up with my. my I was a single mother, and she did a fantastic job. She did the best that she could do, and she ran a family daycare home, like a childcare home, within the house. And so I was always surrounded. There's children everywhere in our house all the time. I guess that's why I ended up going to teaching. But the, the intention was to never be a mainstream teacher. I felt that that had already been addressed. But I loved this idea of not the marginalized, but the people who didn't have a voice. And I wasn't interested in communication at that point. But it, that, that idea of, I guess, fighting for people who needed someone to help the fight uh, appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And then as I started studying, I worked for the Australian Quadripolitics Association of Australia, and I worked in a, a group home as I was studying that had um, four adults who'd been in um, motorbike accidents and, and suffered you know, very severe spinal injuries, and also uh, a lady, an amazing lady called Barbara, who um, had muscular dystrophy. And that was my first introduction to just, I guess, the high level of needs that, 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 that people had around daily functioning and also around communication and also around i guess i I started to become a little bit interested in talking to them around their psychology and what was going on in their minds and i guess people who you know who who do spend their, their life using a wheelchair and are unable to access and engage with some of the things that we take for granted obviously I guess that maybe started to trigger things. It's just like, wow, like this this access thing's a real issue, you know, especially if you can't move your arms or legs. Mm -hmm. And there's this reliance on other people to support that to get you to a point where you can engage. And then I finished that job, you know, being a young person and and sort of jumping around doing different things. And I started working in a group home, which is like a basically, I'm not sure what in the States they call it, but yeah, like a, a group home that had, you know, sort of, Adults with intellectual disabilities. That was my first Mm -hmm. touch point with intellectual disabilities. And when I was working there, I was in my last year of university and I was writing a thesis. It was like there was was an honours year offered. And I did a a thesis that was called Different Settings, Different Voices. This is pre iPad, pre the amazing AACs, Augmented and Alternative Communication that we have access to now and the technology that we have. And I started to realize that there was adults that were these these guys I was working with who were just the coolest people ever. And they were going between their home and their day programs and this respite home. And they were all non-verbal or non-speaking. And none of them had communication systems. None of them had any way to communicate at all. And everyone was just deciding on what they wanted. Mm. And I was just like, wow, this is weird. Like, and... I was kind of generating these thoughts. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you like you read something and you think I've thought that, you know. <laughs> so I started to read up on it just just by myself, and and like as I was doing this thesis, I just started to get into it. It's like this is exactly what I'm thinking. Like this is this is not okay, you know. Like and so I guess that was the beginning of this interest in in disabilities and communication and and the way that you know does does someone if someone is able to communicate, do they have a disability? Do you know what I mean? like And, and like what does disability even mean? Mm-hmm. And and so it sort of started getting me thinking kind of in in, in a different space around that. So And then I got a, a, an honest distinction in my degree and I was a targeted graduate out of university and I went into school and, you know, worked my butt off. And like I was saying to, to, to you and Molly the other night, like I can't play instrument and I can't speak other languages and I would love to learn both of those. But I'm a very good dad. I'm a very, very good special needs teacher. because course, I, I have a, an ability to connect with young people and an ability to understand their changing needs as they develop. And that's something that I pride myself on. And I think that that's why I've, you know, me and my wife have come up with what we've, we've come up with. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've, so I've been working on doing that for 20 years and, 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 and loving every minute of it. It's, it's, it's tough, but it's, it's a good day. Yeah. It's a different day, that's for sure.
1: (laughs) Well, something we like to talk about at the Global Autism Project is your passion station. And a passion station, as Molly describes it, is a memory that you reflect on that reminds you why you love doing what you do. And it could be related to a specific person or an event, a place maybe it's something that usually inspires or moves you. And, you know, sometimes in our work, especially in these helping fields, we may feel stuck or overwhelmed or burnt out, like lacking motivation or energy. And you just kind of start to question if we're on the right path. Like this happens to me sometimes when I'm stressed with work or even with the podcast, like listening to really hardcore stories, you know, I mm. kind of take mm. it on and and then I questioned, why, why am I even in this field? Like, I don't have any children, let alone any autistic children. <laughs> I'm not autistic myself. Like, why am I here? And it's in these moments where we revisit our passion station to kind of refuel why we're here. You know, and I've, yeah. I've told this story before. You might appreciate this, but I'll repeat it for some of our l- new listeners. So when I think about my passion station, it's... This boy that I used to work with when I was living in France, at that time, he was six years old and he was engaging in a lot of self-injurious behavior. So he would hit his head and bite his hand. He was able to make sounds, but he didn't have many functional communication skills. Mm. So I used music in our session to kind of build that requesting. Yeah. Yeah. So for example we would sing nursery rhymes like row 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 your boat and then i'd leave out the boat part and i would elicit the bus sound out of him and he was able to then generalize the bus sound to request for ball or bonbon which is candy in french mm. and it was amazing we saw the self-injurious behavior go down and he was always so excited to start music class so every time i think of him i'm reminded of why I love working with this population.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So what's your passion station, Chris?
0: That's a great story. Can I just jump on on your passion station for a second? So what I've seen, and this is, I guess, a very big passion station that I have, but I do want to tell one story that is something that I will always return to. And so I guess that is the passion station. But the correlation between increase in communication and decrease in self-injurious behavior is something that I've spent the last 20 years looking at self-injurious behavior is something that has deeply concerned me. It was something that as, I guess, someone growing up before I was probably 23, I never knew that self-injurious behavior existed. I'd never heard of that term. And then, you know, after 20 years of working in in schools, I've seen it in in so many different manifestations. And what I have always seen is is that if you increase communication, you decrease self-injurious behavior because usually the driving force of the self injurious behavior is that inability to communicate so
1: or they're trying to communicate something else through the self-injurious behavior
0: absolutely yeah. absolutely and, and and they've worked out that that's that's basically that's the only resource they've got right and there's all sorts of other obviously you know stuff tied to it neurochemistry and all sorts of things but that's a great story and, and I think that that also highlights you know connecting on a very therapeutic level and possibly with songs that this child enjoyed and you're engaging them on a level that that was meeting their needs and their interests and and, and their safe space so mm-hmm. it's um yeah that's that that's my day that's my last 20 years <laughs> <laughs> my story is is one that i that really makes me smile because when i was working and this is even pre-teaching i was working at this group home and there was a, a young boy there a, a a young man there um he would how old would he have been probably sort of 16 years old And he was a big boy he was a big boy he liked his food and he was just he if if he had been typically developing i reckon he would have been playing rugby or you know american football or something like that he was a he was a a very large muscly kid you know and i used to have to do the shopping for the group home and just the circumstances lined up that i had him and i needed to get do the shopping and so i said i'm going to take him as i go shopping and everyone was like you can't take him shopping and I was like, well, I totally can. Like he he'll be fine. And so I took him shopping and it was, it was late at night. It was probably like 9 p.m. And I was in a supermarket and there's not a huge amount of people around. And we're in an aisle and he just took off. Huh. And I thought, oh, no, what's going to happen here? And there was a lady at the end of the aisle and she was looking at the you know, Nutella and peanut butter and, and yeah. Vegemite and whatever. Yeah. And he was away from me. I couldn't do anything. And so it was just one of those moments where I was just like, I really hope this doesn't work out badly for everybody. And he was barreling down this lane and he stopped right. And this, and this lady looked up and she thought, oh, I'm about to die. Like, this is it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I'm about to be run over by truck. And this boy stopped. This young man stopped. And he took a jar of honey off the shelf. And he held it right in front of her face, and he went, "Honey makes you funny." <laughs> and this lady was just like, oh. and it was just that was all he wanted to say because because yeah. he knew that honey honey makes you funny, you know. And <laughs> and it was just that I th- I think that the perception of disabilities and the ability to communicate and have a joke and and to connect and I was just like wow like you know like what are we all worried about you know like why is this such a big deal and like to be fair on me I was I was in my 20s you know like and but that that really sticks with me because it was it was something that I thought something different was going to happen and he showed me that not only was that not going to what I thought was going to happen something very funny and very beautiful was going to happen and yeah and so yeah I, I think that that that's shaped me a lot and and I and I think that in when you work with these young people who have these challenges, you realise that they actually, and I'm sure that, you know, what, what you were talking about, that child that you are working with, they teach you an awful lot about not only about what they're capable of, but also of what you're capable of mm-hmm. and how how your ideas perhaps have been shaped and need to be reshaped by them and by you, you know, as as you move forward with them. And I, I think it's really... Yeah, it's really important. To, when I work with a lot of young teachers, I try and get them to understand that, you know, just, just be careful with what you're going into. And I guess even similar to what we're talking about before you you know, you know, started recording, you know, like you've got to be very careful about overanalyzing and over-researching and, and thinking that you've got the point on everything. You need to be open to possibilities that maybe you haven't entertained. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely, honey makes you funny. I'll, honey I'll makes you funny. It.
1: That's so sweet, pun intended actually love it <laughs> i don't know if i'll ever look at a jar of honey the same now
0: <laughs> no I, I don't every single every single time and my children love honey we've got like yeah. three different types of honey we're a bit spoiled for honey in australia yeah. and so we've got three different types of honey and every single time i put honey on a you know bit of toast for my kids i always tell them honey makes it funny
1: yeah and that boy has no idea how he's changed your life now
0: <laughs> no not at all not at all and he probably still says it yeah It was a cool moment all right, Chris, let's talk
1: about Pixie Pal. Could you describe what Pixie Pal is, just so our listeners know what we're talking about here? Like, describe physically what it is.
0: Definitely. And, and I, I thought to myself prior to this conversation that I was going to bring one, but I can't, I can't be that person and I'm not that person. And so I, I will describe it. But, but what I also will describe is, is that light tech they don't call them low-tech. I guess the, the better term is light-tech. Okay. Low-tech implies like less, you know, but light-tech is equally as important as high-tech. Yeah. And so, yeah, that sort of terminology is something that I learned as well. That's, and, and it sort of makes sense as well. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with, it's kind of like saying a laptop's high-tech and a, a, a pen and pad is low-tech, but it's not actually, a pen and pad's fantastic, do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just a different version. Right. It's not about Pixie Power. It's about light tech. It's about, access. It's about, it's about all AAC. But having access to both high tech and light tech is the best case scenario. If high tech is not an option, having access to any type of light tech is really, really important. And I've just come in and my wife has come in with this product that, that does fit in really well with light tech. And it's a housing for light tech. So basically, Pixie Power is a plastic folder with three pages that are double-sided and it's about the size of an iPad and it can be worn like a bag over your shoulder so the child or the individual using it can can walk around with it and and it's their communication system. It's not a laminated piece of paper up on a wall in a classroom or a therapy room, it belongs to them, it's their communication system and that's a very important point to digest that, that the communication system belongs to them the same way your words belong to you. I'm not in control of your words. I don't get to hold your words. You get to hold your words and speak your words. And so having a communication system that belongs to that person is a very, very important thing. And that had never been done before. There's pod books, but pod books are this thick. Pod books are great. Pod books are fantastic. But for someone to create a pod book is, is, is a lot of work and there's a lot of laminating and there's a lot of complexities around that. Mm -hmm. pod books are great this is not a judgment on pod books but there needed to be a system that was easier to implement and easier to put together and easier to use so pixie power the double-sided pages and basically you can pop out each page and it peels apart kind of like two takeaway container lids and they peel apart and you can put inside them any type of paper, you could put in the, like the, the back of a cereal box that was cut out and you, were, and you were drawing on the back of it and you could put it in, you close them up and it seals. It's pretty much watertight and then those plastic sleeves snap back into the three pages. So you end up with six pages of whatever you want. Now, the way it's being used is it's being used in a multitude of ways. A lot of people are taking screenshots from their AAC apps that they're using
1: oh, okay. and
0: putting them into the Pixie Power a lot of educational people are using, you know, like they're, they're designing lessons around like volcanoes or, you know, going to the beach or whatever, and the children can interact with them using a whiteboard marker, which can draw a whiteboard marker on it. So it's not electronic. There's there's no there's, there's no batteries in it. It's just made of plastic. So it's a housing. It's a, It's a housing for visual supports. And that really doesn't sound so groundbreaking, but... What is groundbreaking about it is, is all of a sudden, children who don't have access to high tech or do have access to high tech, but not in all situations, now all of a sudden do have access to their words. That is what's groundbreaking about it because now there's a system, that, 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 there's a housing that, that anything can be put into. And that that individual, that can be customized, with whatever whatever language, whatever symbol sets, whatever has been chosen, can be put into it. And that that had never been done before. I'm not sure why it had never been done before, but we did it. And we're so proud of it. And we're so excited with all the people that we've collaborated with and that we continue to meet around just how powerful that is because it's super empowering.
1: Yeah. What made you decide to start that?
0: So iPads got invented and, and who would have ever thunk it, you know, that that this amazing bit of technology would be invented that was a touchscreen. All of a sudden you didn't need a mouse. And that really fundamentally changed the world for everybody, especially in the disability space and especially in the communication space. And so I saw this potential in, in touchscreen technology. So my wife and myself, my wife's name is Yen. She's a clinical psychologist. And we came up with this idea for an app that was basically a communication tool, but more leaning into education as in like choice boards and, you know, visual schedules and emotion scales and kind of like health related stuff. And, and we had a real run at it in 2011, 2012, and the app was called Pixie. And it's a very, very hard space if you don't know that space. I was a teacher and she was doing her PhD and we just decided that we'd we'd just do it because like that's why why not? And as it sort of declined, not in that it wasn't a fantastic thing, but to keep something like that going requires a lot of money and marketing and and all this sort of stuff that we just didn't have the bandwidth or or, or money or, or time for. And so we kind of just let it just slip We've got all the assets and it still all exists. But as I got to the end of that, I kind of I started, started to think to myself, you know, like, well, what happens if people don't have an iPad? You know, like, there's a lot of people in the world who don't have an iPad and probably never will have an iPad or a tablet of any description, even a phone. And I guess that was the beginning of it. And I'm a very sort of socially just person and a sort of, I guess, working in the field that I am, you know, in. And it just slowly grew with this idea of like what's out there for people who don't have access to this because that's not really fair. And there was all these great AAC apps coming out. I remember in Australia, Proloquo quote Go was this kind of this first, whoa, like this thing's amazing, you know, like that was yeah. the first one to really kind of hit Australia and, and take off. And there was children walking around with it and it was this accepted sort of thing with speech therapists and things or S- SLPs. But this niggling of, of you know, well, this sort of seems unfair, you know, And then I started to get into this space with my wife with like, it was like, well, then what happens if, even if you do have an iPad, but you're in a situation where, you know, you can't charge your iPad or you can't take your iPad because you don't want it to get damaged or wet or or something like that. And so, you know, obviously pre-iPad, the go-to for most special schools and most parents and most therapists was laminated pieces of paper laminated pieces of paper are fantastic and they're quite time consuming to to make and and all this sort of stuff and so it just started to things just started to sort of click into place it's kind of like okay like we've got this and it just got to a point where we started to sketch out designs and my wife's a very clever person and and i've got a reasonable brain and we just sort of (laughs) came up with this idea and it just and it evolved and we did prototypes and Things really sucked and and we changed things and we we put it to people and we had you know i've got a I've got a collection upstairs of all these different prototypes that we made, all self funded all just just grinding away at night and just just mucking around with things and and it kind of tipped over into a space i guess you now there's a lot of discussion around the 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 term tipping point i guess the the tipping point was like, well, if we've come up with this idea or this concept, it was an idea, but it was more kind of like conceptual in like, like what it could do for people and it was almost like we couldn't turn back and let it go and there was like this, this weird obligation that we needed to somehow keep this going and, and see where it landed and what we realized was that it was going to be a very very powerful tool not only for a place like Australia but you know I started to connect with people in Cambodia to start off with and, and all these different places where there was no option to have high tech. And we always have this idea of this, like that a mother could sit down at night in, a, in, in, in sort of sub, substandard housing with no electricity, buy a candle with a pencil and a piece of paper and be able to sketch out a communication system that the child could use. If that was possible, then really anything was possible because that was, I guess, fulfilling a a human right not only the human right of the child who was going to be using it and i and i do apologize for only kind of focusing on children when i say children i mean anyone with a complex communication need but i guess my whole life and brain is around children's needs but um we just kind of thought you know it it needs to be something that can be easily used because there is all this talk of you know, barriers to this and barriers to that. And it's just like, well, how do, we, how do we just completely remove the barriers? And all they need to do is be able to have access to this thing and they can, sorry, jumping back to what I was saying about human rights, like it's, it's the human right of the child who's going to be using it, but it's also the, the, the right of the parent to be in a position to be able to create something for their child to communicate with. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that became a very important driver as well. You know, not just like what is the rights of the child. Of course yeah. the child has a right to be able to express themselves. But the empowering nature and the capacity-building nature of, of a parent or you know, a community or a family or, or, or being able to shape that communication system, that became just like, hell yeah, they need a right to that. You know, like that's, that's a really important uh, access to a tool that, that they don't have access to at the moment. Because what's the option? They're going to print and laminate Something, how, where, where, where are those resources coming from? Who's laminating for them?
1: Do right. you know what I mean? So yeah.
0: it's sort of, and, 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 and that gets into another whole discussion that interestingly, Molly brought up the other night, you know, it's kind of like, well, there needs to be an, an easy way to do it. But the lamination thing is, is, is quite a cumbersome, expensive and time-consuming resource hungry.
1: And there's an impact on the environment too, she was saying about the plastic.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. A huge impact.
1: What's your mission and vision with Pixie Pal?
0: The mission is, is to try and get as many individuals communicating as possible, because there is a lot of people out there who don't have any knowledge or understanding of what is possible with access to robust communication systems, whether or not that's an individual with autism or any other type of disability, because let's be honest, most disabilities come with some type of communication complex need so we want to make sure that anyone who does have a complex communication need has an option through our device and so that has been the mission from the beginning i guess the vision is is that you know w- w- what is possible because when you know getting back to the discussion around self interest behavior and things like that you know like the vision is is that a world where individuals who do have complex communication needs can communicate more effectively or to the best of their potential, it's gonna be a better world for for those people, not just for those people, but for those people's families and for those people's communities. And I guess on a macro level of what the Global Autism Project is doing is that it's gonna allow those people to have more engagement in their communities and be more present and be more able to contribute and share their own experiences uh, not unlike what this podcast is, it's it's giving people a voice. You know, it's 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 providing a, a conduit to the way they're thinking and the way they're feeling, and what their experience is. You know, I think that that's the only way to to have inclusion and to have acceptance. It's it's to it's to give the people who we're talking about that should be included or should have acceptance, giving them a voice is is very important. And I think that when you're non-speaking or non-verbal, you don't have a voice. My partner in the States, Brandy Wentland, who's an amazing SLP who's done some just fantastic things. And PixiPal wouldn't be where it was without her. She has a company called We Speak AAC, and many of her, you know, amazing friends and colleagues that work with her are AAC users. And their voice is so important, you know, in, in these conversations. Yeah. So yeah, Pixipal is about inclusion and how 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 to include. Through, through providing you know, uh, communication and giving people a voice.
1: Yeah. What would you say are some do's and don'ts related to AAC that you've learned over the years?
0: Yeah, so I'm not a speech language pathologist and I think that's a really important point to note, but I think coming from a educational background and having worked with children in, in, in large groups, And families as opposed to a therapeutic session where you're quite often working one-on-one with an individual, which is a very, very different context. I think that the do's are to start and to begin the journey of what is possible with increased communication and what that looks like in your setting and whether or not that's in Kenya or whether or not that's in Berkeley, California, it, it needs to have a starting point. And I think that there's so much fantastic information out there, free information around how to start and how to begin that process and what that could look like. There's lots of amazing free resources and I will do a shout out to Project Core. Project Core is from the um, University of North Carolina um, on Chapel Hill and they've got an amazing resource that's that can be printed out. So I guess the do's are, and I guess I would probably point people to straight like the absolute do is go to that website and print those free resources out and start using a core board. And if you don't know what a core board is, go and look at Project Core because it's a really, really great starting point. So the do's are start and watch what happens. Watch what happens if an individual who currently is not using any type of communication system at all and watch what happens over the period of one week and one year. And things like that. I've got a, um, a loquat tree in the garden and I planted it with my son about four years ago and it hasn't fruited. And we've been looking after it very well. It, it, sorry, I, I do lie. It fruited last season and we got about 12 fruit off it. And my mother-in-law took care of the kids today and she's a gardener as well. I get on really well with her. And this is what this is sitting on today. So these are the loquats wow. off, the, off, off, the, off the tree day. But that's, that, that took five years.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I
0: think, I think that's – and, and loquats are delicious.
1: And it's a big bowl of, I don't know, how many are in there. That's huge. <laughs> yeah,
0: a lot, a lot. And that's not all of them. She took some home as well. But I think that's a really good example of when you start – like I, I planted the tree and nothing happened for many, many years – but if, if I hadn't have planted it, I wouldn't have a whole lot of loquats like there right now. And I think that's, it, it's just a really good, and not trying to sound all kind of, you know, whimsical or whatever, but I, I think that you've got to plant that tree and you've got to nourish that tree and you've got to, I mean, the do's of AAC are model because you're teaching a language. And so if you want an individual who can't speak or has a lot of trouble communicating via speech, If you want them to be using an alternative, AAC is augmentative, as in it augments the speech they already have, or alternative, like sign language is an alternative to speech. If you want them to be able to use their language effectively, this new language that they're being taught, then you need to speak it to them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: They need to see that, that language in action and not just in sitting down at a table and you're teaching them this language. If I want to learn French or if I want to learn Spanish, the best way I'm going to learn it is to go with a a fluent Spanish speaker to the shops and to the movies, and I've I've got to hear it in action, and I've got to try it, and I've got to immerse yourself. Yeah, yeah, but 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 I but I have to hear it modeled, and and Mm -hmm. I have to also believe that me learning Spanish is really important and that there's a high value being placed on me being able to speak Spanish because it's going to help me engage with my world. And so that's the do, that the the do is to model, you know, and there's a million different, you know, kind of teaching mechanisms around it. But the modeling, I think is so important, not unlike, you know, I've got a two-year-old, you know what I mean? And we were, he was um, washing tomatoes today and I think he washed them about 50 times But he was asking questions like, what is this? What is this? And then I was going, oh, you're doing this and you're doing that. Like I'm modeling that language to him. And you can almost hear him in the moment picking the language up. But if I wasn't modeling to him, he he wouldn't learn.
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
0: So, yeah, the don'ts are, don't start. Don't start doing anything. Just leave a person who can't talk and, and don't give them any type of communication system at all. And just let them continue for the rest of their life with no communication system that would be the don't Mm
1: -hmm. don't 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 do that don't do that
0: (laughs) don't do that that's a really really bad idea
1: yeah yeah
0: so so just start and just just there's just so much there's so much information out there you know to try and you've just got to you just got to kind of get stuck in and 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 just realize just how important language literacy communication connection i think that's a a, a, i guess i've been talking a lot about this lately like you know it's it's not so much the communication, it's the connection. And you, you, know, you can have, if you think about someone that's really important to you, that if something big happened in your world, you would call them or seek them out so you could have a conversation with them about this event. And you have to reflect on, well, why would you seek that person out? Because you, you could potentially call anyone. You, know, you could go and talk to your neighbor about it. You could communicate with them about it. That would be quite easy. So the communication is not the problem. But the reason why you want to tell them this great news, whether it's good or bad or in between or whatever it is, the reason why you want to tell them that is because of the connection that you have with them. Mm -hmm. And that's why you want to share that information with them. So the communication is not the problem. It's the connection. And so the, the, the individual who's learning AAC needs to have that connection with the person teaching it to them. And I think that that's a really fundamental part of of just teaching in general, I mean, there has to be that trust and rapport and support, and having the individual feel that they can stuff it up or that you can stuff it up, and that's going to be okay because you know tomorrow's a new day, and you just kind of you just kind of push on. But that connection drives drives the communication. It's not it's not just the communicate just just the communication.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, Chris, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to families or professionals who might be feeling stuck, like maybe they've started the process, they have a Pixie Pal already, they've put in their core board or they have a program, but now they're just, they feel like they're not making any progress or they find their child becoming really frustrated. What would you say to them?
0: That's a great question. And it's something that I guess all, not just all parents, but all teachers and all Therapists, it's a place that they hit regularly. And I think that if I could give a couple of bits of advice, my first bit of advice is I think backing up is a really important part, of obviously, in life in general. But, you know, you have to be able to back up. If you're working with someone who does have a complex need, you have to be able to back up for them because you need to model that. You, you need to model the process of being able to back up. So if there's been a bad day or a bad event or you know, something's gone really wrong, you have to show them what it looks like to stand back up off your butt and dust yourself off and say, okay, cool, that was terrible, but that's going to happen and it's probably going to happen again. It might even happen tomorrow. You model that backing up. That's my first bit of advice. My second bit of advice is I think we're getting way too caught up in the intensity of, and I'm not saying there's not a place for this. None, none, none of this is, I'm not saying that there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely room and, and importance around outcomes-based teaching and following curriculum and curriculum development and, and assessment and reporting and, and all these things. That's all critical, you know, all critical. But I think that if there's not a part of it where there's fun, and a looseness to what's going on, I think that you're not only kidding yourself, but I think that you're letting down the individual that you're working with because I think that a bit of joking around and fun actually is like a major hack, a major hack. And I'll just stay in my lane and speak from an educational perspective. I've gotten tremendous gains out of children that, other people have had huge problems with because they want to be so linear and so, you know, structured, structured beyond belief. And when you're doing that, you're determining what is possible. You're creating a sphere around or a box around what is possible. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a place for that. And that's really important to do. But you also need to be willing to just let it fly sometimes and just see what is what is possible. And, and I guess the greatest example and the biggest inspiration to me at the moment is my seven-year-old son, who is the most highly intelligent, complicated, sensitive little dude that he's going to be the most amazing adult when he grows up. And he's going through a really tough time at the moment. And I guess this is a really nice way to wrap up with you know, technology and AAC and all that sort of stuff. And, and he's typically developing. He doesn't have autism. But his mum came home from work. She worked really late tonight. And I was upstairs and we were about to go to bed. And he, I was letting him play Minecraft. He had to finish this game of Minecraft that he was playing. And he had my phone and he ran down and gave my phone because it was joined to his world on his iPad. And he gave my phone to my wife. And he went back upstairs with his iPad and he was typing in the chat of Minecraft and having a conversation with my wife about his day and could, could she bring milk up and, and all this sort of stuff. And I, th- and, and, and I was about to stop it. I was about to say, put the bloody iPad down. It's finished. Like it's, it's time for bed. But I stopped myself and I guess this is my point. I stopped myself because he was a seven-year-old boy trying to connect with his mum who hasn't seen all day. And, I mean, Thierry's saying it. and yeah. And, and, and because, because how dare I stop that? He was trying to communicate and he was using AAC. It was an alternative to speech and it was within the game that he was playing. How he thought of doing that, I don't know, right? Yeah. And that proves how innovative and creative children can be if they just have access to it. That they just need access. If they don't have access to it, they're not going to blow your mind. But they will blow your mind if they have access to it. But don't, don't you dare decide on how it's going to play out because you don't know. You don't know. And if you've only just introduced it, you definitely don't know how it's going to play out because you just introduced it. Do you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so be be self aware and also be let yourself go into where. The possibilities may lie because I guarantee with all my heart, they will surprise you and they will teach you what is possible rather than the other way around. And I think that you need to be conscious of that and mindful of that. Mm
1: -hmm. Wow. Well, that is a really inspiring story. Thank you for sharing that. Thank
0: you. You're most welcome. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: So how can people learn more about you and the work you're doing?
0: So, I mean, our website is pixiepal.com, P-I-C-S-E-E-P-A-L.com. And we're working really hard. Our priority has become working and collaborating with people abroad. We're working with, I'm just going to shout out to the Nika Project, who I'm going to um, definitely connect, you know, Molly and, and the project with, because it's you guys will just get along so fantastically. One of the founders is Dan Phillips, who's one of the most He's like the most heroic gentleman I've ever met. You you guys are really, you know, um, are very well aligned. And we've done some amazing projects and we're in the process of doing amazing projects across many different countries, many of which you're in. And I I guess just watch us. We're, you know, we're trying to be as social as we can be um, across the different platforms. We're just kind of getting on our feet a little bit after COVID because that really did knock us about and... I lost one of my partners who was a childhood friend um, who passed away from cancer just as we launched, oh. which was a huge, devastating blow. And he was my creative animation, tech, audio, editing. He was my dude, do you know what I mean? And um it was a it was a massive personal blow and it was also a really hard process to go through trying to launch a business. But what is driving us is what we're doing globally. And so I guess just keep an eye out for what, for what we're doing because, you know, we're kind of everywhere. And I think that what we're doing is trying to, not unlike what, what you're trying to do, you know, we're trying to kind of lead the way and, and sort of model to people what what is possible. So, yeah, and, and I, I guess, I guess if, if, if you're interested, please just reach out. Just reach out to me and send me an email. I love, I love an email. I've got a great email today from a parent who's, Child's using a high tech AAC and, and they're um, now using a Pixie Power when they go swimming and things like that. And mm. she was just so happy. She was like, This is a great device. Thank you for creating it. My kid's five years old and he loves it. And, you know, he, we, he hasn't up until this point been able to communicate when he's in the pool and now he can. And so thank you. Do you know what I mean? And like that. And that, yeah. that, that, that's enough. I don't, I don't need much more than that. So reach out. My, my email is hello at pixiepower.com. And I love an email and, and I think that we, if anyone wants to collaborate or share or, you know, wants me to work with them, we work with school districts, we work with insurance companies, we work with not-for-profits, we work with NGOs, we work with governments. We're going to hopefully start a project with UNICEF. We're trying to do a lot of stuff. So just try and, try and catch us within all of that and, and, and we just, all we want to do is share and help. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, keep up the great work. You guys are really making a big difference here.
0: Thank you so much. And
1: I appreciate this conversation, you know, just hearing your passion for the work is kind of reigniting that spark in me too. So thank you. Yeah,
0: wonderful, wonderful. It's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and I hope we can talk again. And um, I um, look forward to many years of, of, you know, doing great stuff together.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Chris's story is a good reminder that every individual should be able to communicate through whatever method is best for them. The ability to connect with others and express one's needs is fundamental to reducing frustration and improving quality of life. Like Chris, are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Or are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online Global Autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community.
0: You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.